How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? Amen. Awesome. This morning, I want to begin to refocus us. Sometimes the Lord can give us very clear instruction. The thing that we don't realize is that when the Lord gives us very clear instruction, it's because He sees what's coming. And the instruction that He gives is designed to prepare us to make our way through what's coming. So God gave me a clear instruction at the end of last year, beginning of this year, that I forgot <laughs> in the midst of the crisis of this year. Yeah. And he sent his servant, Pastor Dyrell Venable, to remind me of it. Yeah. <laughs> we were just down in Southern California for a conference, with our conference. Yeah. And uh, we had a prayer time with just our team. It was our trustees, minus Chris Davies, and uh, our staff, what's left of it. <laughs> and. Uh, we were, I was just pouring out my heart and talking about, you know, we were talking about the crisis of this year. And, and then Pastor Dyrell looked at me and said, PB, what did God tell you a year ago? What did God tell you at the beginning of this year? What did God tell you? And I was like, that was like, oh, yeah, of course. God always, already saw this coming. And what God told me a year ago, well, end of last year, beginning of this year, it was actually about a year ago this time. He gave me three mandates. Yeah. Number one, set your eyes on the harvest. Yeah. Number two, call the whole church to the ministry. Yeah. Yeah. And number three, raise up new voices. Yeah. I immediately started thinking about how to do number three. Yeah. <laughs> and that didn't work. I thought we had one and then he left and moved to uh, Texas. But they're coming back. But what I realize is there's an order there. Yeah. First, set your eyes on the harvest. Not just me, the whole church. Yeah. And when we all set our eyes on the harvest, it'll be easy to call the whole church to ministry. Yep. Yep. And once we call the whole church to ministry, it'll be easy to raise up new voices. Yeah. So I want to start this morning by redirecting us. Uh, we weren't ready to make this announcement yet, but I need to make it. Uh, we're going to do a food drive, a turkey drive for Thanksgiving. And we're going to need a lot of help with that. Also, uh, if you haven't signed up to help with Trunk or Treat, Trunk or Treat this coming Saturday is a very important day. We're reaching this whole neighborhood. We're yeah. reaching this whole community. Yeah. And we need every hands on, on deck for that. Every, yeah. every possible hand that can help with that. Yeah. Please be here to help with that uh, because that's going to be a wonderful time. But we're going to experience the kind of church that God destined us to experience yeah. when we set our eyes on the harvest. I'm going to read from you from the book of Acts, chapter 9. Starting at verse 1. Acts, chapter 9, starting at verse, verse 1. I'm reading out of the New King James Version. And um, I didn't give this to the, the people at the back in time, so they might not get it on the screen. It's not their fault. It's my fault. So I'm just going to read it to you. This is what it says. Then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, 
and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would speak to us by the power of your word and spirit. Give us insight and understanding, I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. The conversion of Saul teaches us something that grates against our cultural understanding of Christianity and of salvation. First, very important, is it a little bit hot in here? Could we turn down, just put on just one degree, just one degree. Okay, two degrees, no, just one. Pastor Chenway knows what to do. It's a little warm, I'm going to be sweating pretty soon, like T.D. Jakes. When you look at the conversion experience of this guy, Saul of Tarsus, there are some things that we learn by reflecting on his conversion experience that great against the culture of contemporary Christianity. It doesn't grate against the culture of the world. It grates against our culture in the church. The conversion story of Saul is for Christians. It's something that Christians need to understand that we don't understand. Because when we think about salvation, when we think about the gospel, we tend to think as consumers. I needed to be saved, so he offered me salvation. I needed to be forgiven, so he offered me forgiveness. I needed to be cleansed, so he offered me cleansing. I needed to be healed, so he offered me healing. I needed to be restored, so he offered me restoration. I tend to think like a consumer. A consumer is someone who has a need, and then you've got a vendor who can provide for that need, and that's how the economy works. That's how the world works. I need, you provide for my need, and that's the transaction. That's how it works, but that's not what happened with Saul of Tarsus. Because in his mind and heart, he had no need of salvation. He wasn't looking for it. He wasn't hungering for it. He wasn't, I mean, if you want to start a business, the first thing you need is a hungry crowd. If you don't have a crowd that's hungry for what you're selling, your business will fail. But if you've got a hungry crowd, a crowd that's hungry for what you're selling, your business is about to blow up. But when Jesus came to Saul, he didn't come to one who was hungry. He came to one who thought he was full. He didn't approach him because he was hungry. He didn't approach him because he was desperate. Not like the Syrophoenician woman. She came to Jesus desperate. Have mercy on me. My child, my daughter is demon possessed. Have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, it's not good to take the bread that's for the children and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, master, but even the dogs eat the, food, eat the scraps that fall from the master's table. Jesus says, wow, that's the most faith I've ever seen. Go in peace. You have what you asked. And her daughter was healed from that very moment. She came to Jesus desperate. Saul of Tarsus did not. He was on the way to kill the followers of Jesus. He was on the way to destroy the church. He was on the way to disrupt the gospel. He was against, he was an enemy of Christ. So why in the world 
Would Christ save him? And the core lesson, the fundamental truth that we discern, that we glean from the, the salvation experience, the conversion experience of Saul of Tarsus, is that Jesus saves you because he needs you, not simply because you need him. He was saved not simply because he has, as an individual needed to be saved, but because God needed him for something. Now I know we talk, we have this whole Abba construct and one of the, the fundamental premises of our church is that your purpose is not to do something for God, but to be the eternal object of God's eternal love. That's why you exist. Yeah. But I want to make a distinction between the purpose of your existence and the purpose of your conversion. He created you to love you, but he saved you to use you. And if all you're thinking is about what you need, yeah. you're going to approach the Christian faith as a consumer. Yeah. And if Saul of Tarsus had approached the Christian faith as a consumer, none of us would be here today. Yeah. Because the entire mission to the Gentiles would have never happened. I think a lot of people have somewhat of an inferiority complex. People who get saved who are like really out there. I've had friends who were murderers before they got saved, like real murderers, like they got bodies. I had friends who got saved who were, I got a friend who was a pimp before he got saved, right? I'd, I've known most, many people who were prostitutes. I've known many people who were drug addicts. I've known many people who were thieves. I've known many people who had like rough backgrounds and, and they've got some real sin and some real skeletons in the closet. And I think if you got saved and you've got a past, you know, like you're trying to wear long sleeves to cover the, the tattoos, you got that teardrop removed. You know what I'm talking about? Like you got a past. There's a sense of inferiority. I don't think you should have any sense of inferiority because of your past. In, in fact, it would be the opposite. I mean, you should have no superiority nor inferiority. But if you had to choose one, choose a sense of superiority. Why? Because you know you shouldn't be saved. The difference, between, the difference between someone who never sinned before and God saved them and whose life was full of sin and God saved them is the person whose life was full of sin knows that they ain't got no business being saved. They know there's no way I should be saved. You look at my history and you look where I've been and you look what I've done and you look at the life I've lived. There's no way he should have saved me. So if he saved me, he must have a plan for me. It couldn't have just been for me. It couldn't have just been so he and I could sit in a room and sing Kumbaya for the rest of our lives together. If there was one thing that was revealed to Saul of Tarsus at his conversion is that he was saved so that he would be a chosen vessel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was saved to be a vessel. This is the word of the Lord to each and every one of us today. You were saved to be a vessel, yeah. not a consumer. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all we tend to think about is what I'm going to consume. Yeah. And even going to church, I go to church to consume. Well, let's see what kind of worship they're serving today. 
Let's see what kind of sermon they're serving today. Let's see if I get anything out of this. Let's see if I can glean any. Let's see if any of this is relevant to my life. Let's see if I can take any of this and eat it and then apply it to my life. That's what I'm looking for is something I can consume, something I can glean that is useful for me, that is beneficial for me, that is edifying for me. But what if you stopped thinking like a consumer and started thinking like a vessel? It would change your whole experience of church. It would change your whole experience of life. It would change your whole experience of your vocation. It would change your whole experience of family. If you woke up in the morning and said, wait a second, I'm the only member of my family that's saved. It couldn't have been that that was just for me. What if God saved me so I could be a vessel to my family on his behalf? I'm the only one in my office who's saved. What if God saved me so I could be a vessel in my office? You know, um, black people, we think this way intrinsically. You know what I'm talking about? If you're the only black person at your job, you immediately have a sense. I represent all black people in all places and at all times (laughs) in this place. So if I act out, this is the way they're going to think about black people. You, you understand? We, we have to do that. We think that. That's just natural. That's natural for us. We've been trained that way from the time we're little. Huh. Kirby Clements Jr. told this story about being, sitting in class. He was at, at a white school when he was in high school. He was the only black kid in the class. And he was sitting in class one day thinking, you know, acting gangster and had his hat turned to the side. And his mother happened to be at the school that day and she peeked in the classroom and saw him sitting there with his hat all to the side. And she cracks the door open and looks at the teacher and goes, I need to borrow him for a second. She said, and she pulled him out of the class, threw him up against the wall and said, don't you realize you're the only black person in this class? Take that fool hat off. Button up your shirt. Act, act like you got some sense. And she, he said, mama, do I have to represent all black people everywhere? She said, yes, you're going to represent today. Now get in there and act like you got some sense. Some of us need a Holy Spirit mama to pull us out of our classroom. Don't you realize you're the only believer in this room? Don't you realize you're the only believer in your family? Don't you realize you're the only believer on your job? Act like you got some sense. but I'm getting ahead of myself. Saul is on the way to kill some more Christians. And he meets Jesus. He sees a blinding light. He falls to the ground. Then he hears a voice. And the voice speaks to him in the Hebrew language. We learned that in Acts 26, when Paul is giving his testimony to King Agrippa. He gives that detail of the story that we don't get in Acts chapter 9. He says, The Lord Jesus met me on the road to Damascus and spoke to me in the Hebrew language, which was his native tongue. He wrote all of his epistles in Greek, but his native language was Hebrew. He was born in Jerusalem. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was not just a Hebrew, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was like Time Magazine's Hebrew of the Year. It was called Kairos Magazine. 
He was of the tribe of Benjamin, which means he was able to trace his lineage all the way back to Benjamin and then before Benjamin to Jacob and from Jacob to Isaac, Isaac to Abraham. He could chase, trace, he could trace his lineage all the way back to Adam. He knew who he was. He knew where he had come from. He knew what he was about. But when he meets the Lord, the Lord knocks him off of his beast. He falls to the ground and then calls him by his name. There's a misconception that Saul changed his name to Paul when he became a Christian. That's wrong. Simon's name was changed to Peter. That's true. Saul's name was not changed to Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paulos was his Greek name. Since he was little, all his life, he was Paulos in the Greco-Roman world. Remember, he was raised in Tarsus. He was born in Jerusalem, raised in Tarsus. In Jerusalem, he was Saul or Shaul. In Tarsus, he was Paulos or Paul. Jesus doesn't call him by his worldly name. He calls him by his Hebrew name. He calls him, speaks the language of the heart to him. Saul. Saul. And he calls his name twice. God did that to Moses too, didn't he? Moses, Moses. He did it to Abraham. Abraham, Abraham. Do you hear the tenderness? When he spoke to Sarah, he only called her name once though. He has to speak twice to men, once to women. (laughs) Women hear him the first time. <laughs> Saul, Saul. There's a an intimacy, a tenderness in the voice of the Lord. And then he says, Why do you persecute me? Translation, why are you against me? Why are you trying to stamp me out? very tenderly and intimately rebukes him. That's that's what the voice of the Lord does. He just speaks to you with so much love. He says, Robin, Robin, why are you so stubborn? (laughs) No, I'm just playing. (laughs) I'm just playing. (laughs) Calls him by name and then reveals to him, you're against me. And you don't even know it. You're persecuting me. And you don't even know it. This is the first thing that we discover in this encounter. Is that there's only two places. Only two sides. There's Christ and Antichrist. You're either for him or you're against him. There's no demilitarized ground. There's no neutrality. I'm neutral. No, you are not. You're either for him or you're against him. There's this whole thing in our culture where we think we don't have to make a decision about who Jesus is and what he is to us. No, you have to make a decision. And if you've delayed the decision, you've made a decision. And there's a lot of folks that come to church every week and haven't made a decision about who Jesus is. And the word of the Lord to you is choose this day whom you will serve. Stop putting off the decision. You make a decision. You either serve him or you don't serve him. And by not making a decision, you've made a decision. Meaning that after this encounter was over, Saul of Tarsus could not say to Jesus, I'll pray about it. You gave me some stuff to think about. Maybe when I get some stuff figured out in my life, I'll, I'll make a decision. No, 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 no. Right now, Saul. Yeah. 
You've heard the gospel. You've met Jesus. You decide right now. Are you for me? Are you against me right now? Why do you persecute me? And then Saul says, I need some more information. I don't even know you. Who are you, Lord? Which was an incredible, humble statement for Saul of Tarsus to make. A Hebrew of Hebrews, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, according to law, a Pharisee. According to the righteousness that is of the law, blameless. According to zeal, persecuting the church. This guy believed from the bottom of his heart that he knew God, that he was walking with God, that he was serving God, that he was obedient to God. Literally, this guy, Saul of Tarsus, when he said in Philippians that according to the righteousness that's through the law, he was blameless, literally he was saying, I can't think of one time in my life when I've broken the law in any way. There's nobody who could say that. Literally, he's like, I've never broken the law before. I killed a few Christians, but I, you know what I'm <laughs> I didn't think that was breaking the law. <laughs> I've never eaten, you know, I've never eaten meat with milk together. And for this guy in this moment, in this encounter with Jesus to confess when he says, who are you, Lord? He's confessing that he doesn't know God. This guy who thought he knew God meets God and immediately confesses that he didn't know God. This guy who claimed to be serving God meets God and in that moment realizes that not only was he not serving God, he doesn't even know who God is. Meaning he was living in the illusion that he knew God. You can live in the illusion that you know God until you meet God. And then suddenly you're like, wow, I thought I knew you. I don't know you at all. Who are you, Lord? This is one of the most powerful, one of the most fundamental questions you can ask the Lord. Who are you? Show me who you are. There's a humility of heart that God is looking for. Well, we start by saying, God, every day when I wake up, God, it would be prideful of me to think that I know you, to think that I've exhausted you. I need to know who you are. Who are you, Lord? Because if until you reveal to me who you are, I can persecute you and not even know it. Yeah. He said, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. I'm Jesus. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not crystals, not your horoscope, not the sun, moon, and the stars, not some uh, uh, mist or or uh, universal consciousness, I'm Jesus. Whom you persecute. You persecute because you didn't know that I am he. You persecute me because you didn't know that I am he. I'm Jesus. Whom you persecute. You see, one thing that Paul had going for him, because he was so overtly anti-Christ... Had he not been overtly anti-Christ, he had just lived thinking that he was spiritually neutral, then he could get saved and live a spiritually neutral life on the other side of salvation. You know what I'm talking about? 
Like, I wasn't drawing people away from Christ before I came to Christ, and now I'm not drawing nobody to Christ now that I know Christ. I'm spiritually neutral. My life doesn't influence anybody. His life was influencing people away from Jesus, and he knew once he came to Jesus that in order to make a U-turn, my life has to do the opposite. And those of us who believe that we've been living spiritually neutral don't realize that before we came to Christ, we were living anti-Christ and our lives were influencing people away from Jesus. We just didn't know it. You thought you were neutral, but there's no such thing as neutral. You're going to serve one or the other. You can't serve two masters. You're either going to love the one and hate the other or cling to the one and despise the other. You can't. There is no neutral ground. I'm Jesus, the one you've been persecuting, that Jesus says, it's hard for you. It's hard for you. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you. This interim season of your life before coming to me has been so hard for you. This was not the first time Paul heard of Jesus. Obviously, he was persecuting the followers of Jesus, so he'd obviously heard of Jesus. He was in and out of Jerusalem every year for the feasts, which means he was around for the ministry of Jesus. He probably saw Jesus work some miracles, but he was, so, he was such a hardened Pharisee that he was with the rest of the Pharisees when they were demanding, when they were plotting to kill Jesus. He was probably in some of those meetings. He probably came up with the best ideas. He had encountered the ministry and the life of Jesus. He had borne witness to the crucifixion of Jesus. He had taken part in the persecution of Jesus. So he knew Jesus. And there was this interim period from the first that he hears of Jesus to the moment he surrenders to Jesus. And that interim period, Jesus says, it's been so hard for you. It's been so hard for you. Listen, the moment you hear about Jesus, you enter into a furnace. Until you submit to him. It's so hard to live in that in-between place. That that place in between. It would have been better for you never to hear of him. But to hear of him and then reject him every day. To try to pretend that you could ignore him. To try to pretend that you don't have to make a decision about him. To try to pretend that you're maybe working your way towards a decision. America is the only place in the world where, where we think that it's theologically right to have an indefinite period of time to consider whether or not you'll follow Christ. (laughs) As if it's like, well, you know, let me see if he's worth it or not. Jesus, in his day, he gave folks one chance. You might be in the boat with your daddy and he walked down to the sea and said, come follow me, and then turned and left. And you either followed or you didn't. That's like my mama. We'd be at the mall, she'd be like, time to go. (laughs) And if you weren't in the car when she turned on the motor, you had to figure out how to get home. She didn't say it twice. She didn't beg. so hard for you. And he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what are are goads? 
Back then, there were oxen. I know we've heard of oxen, but there are no oxen in the United States of America. I don't know where they get the tails from. They ship them in from somewhere, I don't know. I mean, notice you never had an ox leg. It's just a tail, that's it. But if you had a yoke of oxen, this is how you plowed a field. And they put a yoke on two oxen, then connect the plow to the yoke, and then you stood behind the oxen with a goad. And you would goad, it's just a sharp stick that you'd goad the oxen in the butt with to make them go forward. Yeah. Meaning, the goads were directional. If the oxen start to turn to the right, you just goad them to the left a little bit so they go straight. If the oxen start going to the left, you start goading them to the right a little bit to, start to, go, to, to just straighten them out. Literally, what the Lord was saying to Saul was, I've been trying to straighten you out. If you're not really walking with Jesus, I guarantee you got some goad experiences in your life. You could sit down and fill a journal with ways that he's goaded you. Tried to turn you a little bit, tried to speak to you. I remember seeing my brother wrestle with this, like fully committing himself to the Lord. And he would go out there and party and, you know, do his thing and then come home all beat up because he got jumped. It's like he's been goaded. I mean, I know I, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. But he, he, he would even say in the moment, this is the Lord speaking to me. <laughs> this is the Lord talking to me. Yeah. Go out and shoplift or something and get caught. Always get His friends did it. They never got caught. He does it. He gets caught. Mom lights him up with the leather belt. He's being goaded. <laughs> yeah. And there were all these moments in his life where he saw, and he would submit to the goad temporarily. Yeah. He would break down and he would cry. I know the Lord's speaking to me. I know the Lord's calling me back. I know the Lord is showing me that, th that this is not the way I was raised. Until he realized how hard it was to kick against the goads. Do you know how hard it is yeah. to resist the loving prods of the Holy Spirit yeah. who's trying to call you into a place of abundance of life? Do you know how hard that is? Yeah. You know how painful that is? Yeah. It's hard for you, Saul. What the Lord is literally saying is this moment is not the first moment that we've had together. This isn't the first time that I've reached for your life. This isn't the first moment that I've sought to straighten you out. This is not the first moment that I've placed my hand on your life. You've been kicking against the goad since you heard of me. That's why you fought me so hard, because something on the inside of your heart was telling you that I am the truth. And you couldn't handle that, because you knew that if I was the truth, then everything you've been fed is a lie. That if I was the truth, your entire lifestyle and everything that goes with it is a lie. You knew that if I was the truth, you were going to have to walk away from everything to follow me. It would cost you all you had. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Yeah. And he responds, tell me what I must do. Yeah. Surrender. Yeah. That's it. From humility... Who are you to surrender? Tell me what you want me to do. Yeah. At the end of the day, these are the only two things that we ever need to say to God. Yeah. At least they're the most important and the most foundational. Yeah. But we've said everything else but this. Yeah. 
We've said, bless me with this and bless me with that and heal me of this and heal me of that and provide for me this and provide me for that. But we've never said, but who are you? And what do you want me to do? Who are you? And what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, go into a city and I'll tell you what I want you to do. And there were three days of agony for Paul. He was blind for three days. He was rolling around on the floor. He was groveling. He was wrestling with the implications of his encounter with Jesus. He was wrestling in his mind with what this is going to mean. He was counting the cost. Most of us who come to Jesus never count the cost. We never come to the conclusion of what this is going to cost me. And so we come to Jesus without buying the field. We picnic in the field, but we don't buy it. And you don't buy the field, you don't get the treasure. Then he has another encounter. Ananias comes to him. The Lord shows Ananias that he's a chosen vessel. He says, I'm going to show you what great things he must suffer. What if the first thing the Lord showed you after you were saved was, number one, that you're a chosen vessel, and number two, that you're going to suffer? The first part, you're a chosen vessel. What does that mean? That means that God hasn't saved you for yourself. He saved you on behalf of others. It's called inclusive representation. God chose Abraham out of all of the peoples of the earth. Why? Because God only loved Abraham. No. He says to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. What does he say to Abraham? I chose the world in you. I chose you for the world. Not just from the world. I chose you for the world. God says, I chose you from your, I chose you not just from your family, but for your family. Not just from your job, but for your job. Not just from your community, but for your community. And many of us come to grips with what God has called us from and saved us from. But not what he saved us for. The whole revelation of Jesus to Saul of Tarsus is summarized in this. I'm Jesus. You've been persecuting me. And I got a plan for you. You're chosen to be a vessel. Yeah. You're chosen to be a vessel. My brother had a hard life before coming to Christ. I think his life after coming to Christ was harder. Why? Because from the moment he submitted his life to Christ, he knew he was a vessel. I know this ain't for me. It's not just for me. I mean, yes, he loves me too. But there's no way he saved me from everything he saved me from. And he doesn't have a plan for my life. He doesn't have a purpose for my life. He doesn't have a direction for my life. And so every morning he started waking up and saying, Lord, what do you need? 
I'll go where you send me. I'll speak to whom you ask me to speak. I'll do what you want me to do. What do you need, God? Here I am. I belong to you. You bought me with a price. I am not my own. What do you need? What do you need? What if every morning you started the day with that confession? Lord, you bought me with a price. I am not my own. What do you need? Here I am. Send me. Here I am. Send me. If you need somebody, Lord, I'm right here. If you need somebody, Lord, I'm right here. If you need somebody, Lord, I'm right here. And I find when you have that mindset, it's amazing what God does. The people you get to talk to. The open doors that God opens. The people you get to minister to if you have that mindset. Most of us don't have that mindset, so we we can't remember the last time we ministered to somebody. And we think it's because we don't know what to say. Do you realize that there's something in you, that there are people in the world... There are people in the world who are looking for exactly what you have. That what God has done in you right now, without you having any training or education, if you would simply open your heart to being a vessel, there are people right now, now. all around you, who need what you have. What if we just adopted that heart and that mindset as a body, as a church? We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. The one benefit of being the pastor of this church that I get and my wife gets is embedded in that, and even Pastor Chinway and the other members of the staff, embedded in that calling and saying yes to that calling is the knowledge that I do not go to church for myself. When it's time to go to church, it's I go to be a vessel. And if I go to be a vessel, he doesn't leave me empty. He fills me too. But I don't go there to get filled personally. That mindset and that truth is for every believer. That's for every believer. What would happen if we all adopted that mindset? Our whole church. Well, number one, more of us would go to church more frequently. Why? Because if I'm thinking not going for myself. There might be some newcomer off the street who doesn't know Jesus, who's never heard the gospel. This might be their first opportunity to receive the gospel. And if they don't see in our congregation that there's a seriousness about this thing, they're going to walk away believing that we don't believe in it. I don't forget back in the day, we had a newcomer wanted to join the worship team. And so we said, well, if you want to join the worship team, you've got to attend rehearsal for three months. You've got to learn this music, this repertoire. So she said, okay, she showed up early for rehearsal and none of the other members of the team showed up that day. And she said, she made a decision right there. They're not serious about this, so neither will I be. So after that, she was lackadaisical. She showed up when she felt like it. I'm not trying to put the worship team on blast. That was years ago. Ain't none of y'all in this room, so just ain't nobody you even know. I'm saying is that if if I'm thinking to myself there's somebody who needs Jesus. Do you know I could be a light to them just by being an example? Do you know I could be a light to them just by being an example? Just by being an example of one who loves the Lord with all my heart, mind, and soul? Just by being there? 
with the right mind and the right heart and the right attitude? That somebody's life could change simply because I showed up? Because I didn't see my presence as being insignificant? You on the online campus, do you know that somebody's heart could open to Jesus just because of a comment that you put in the chat? That a comment that you put in the chat makes a statement that this is important to me, that this is life-giving for me? What if we had that mindset as a house? That's what happens when we set our eyes on the harvest. That's what happens when we set our eyes on the harvest. Why am I going to church? Because there's a harvest. There's a harvest of souls that God's called us to reach. And we've got to come together if we're going to reach that harvest. We cannot reach that harvest when we're separated and isolated and, and broken up. And we've got to come together if we're going to reach that harvest. It takes all of us. There's power there. There's power there. All of the power that you saw released in the ministry of the Apostle Paul came through his fundamental conviction. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. I belong to Jesus. I'm a chosen vessel. And he's going to send me to others. He's going to give me away. And there's such freedom in that. That if I allow him to give me away, he'll never leave me empty. He'll always fill me up. He'll always recharge my batteries. He'll always strengthen and encourage me and give me life. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, first and foremost, that if there's anyone lingering in the valley of decision, anyone who's postponed their decision to follow you, I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you would grant the boldness and the courage to decide. Is it Jesus or not? Are you going to serve him or not? And I pray that you would silence the voice of the enemy in every life. The voice of the enemy that would try to convince you that there's even a choice. That that surrender would happen today. And that this would be the day of salvation. I pray that decision would happen now. It doesn't happen when you say a prayer. It happens when your heart decides. You can say a prayer without a decision, but you can't make a decision without a prayer. If you make a decision, your heart will pray. Make a choice. Make a choice. Secondly, Father, I pray that each and every one of us would embrace this heart, this truth. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. I'm a, I'm a vessel. I'm a vessel. I'm a vessel to my family. I'm a vessel to my community. Wherever I go, I'm a vessel. Lord, teach us to live as chosen vessels. Teach us to live as chosen vessels. Teach us to live as chosen vessels. And Lord, when we decide to become vessels, when we make that decision in our heart to submit to your calling to be vessels, you come and fill those vessels. Come and fill those vessels. Fill us, God. Fill us with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. But thank you that that fullness only comes in response to the decision, the embrace of the calling.
to be a vessel. I speak your blessing over each and every life and give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me say something. If anybody here made that decision, I want you to come talk to me. And if anybody here have made that decision even previously today, but have never been baptized, baptism is the first commandment of Jesus. It's the first step of obedience for a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, I got good news for you. Next Sunday morning, we're baptizing right at the end of service. So come talk to me. Sign up for baptism. If you're watching this online and you want to come next Sunday and get baptized, put that in the chat. Pastor Jamerson will follow up with you. If you're here today and you want to get baptized, come talk to me. Let me know. We'll put your name on the list. We'll follow up with you. It's the first step of obedience for a believer in Jesus Christ. And a number of our youth are getting baptized next Sunday. and That's exciting. So stick around after service for a few minutes for that baptism. Amen? God bless you. May the joy of the Lord be your strength and may His favor be your shield. Have a wonderful day.